0: this is lisa and you're listening to i love that movie uh and if you want to reach out to me on twitter you can do so at aya lisa cosplay i'm also on instagram at aya and as a nancy a.m.i. lisa and i'm on facebook As well, we have a page and we also have a group. And if you want to join the group, it's closed. But just send me a request and I'll add you. It's just a safe space for movie lovers to discuss their favorite films, judgment-free. And if you like what you heard today, please subscribe and rate the show. Uh, Leave us a positive review if you like it, and if you leave one of those on iTunes, you're automatically entered to win a $20 gift card to a movie theater chain of your choice. Uh, I'm at 23 reviews right now. Once I get to 30, I'm going to draw a name, so leave one today. Uh, and I have a returning guest with me here. I have Tim. Say hi, Tim. Hi, Tim. <laughs> hey. Well, Tim, you've been on here, th- I think this is your third time, right? You did Duel, yes. and then we did uh, Prisoners.
1: Yes. And
0: what are we doing today?
1: Uh, We're doing Catch Me If You Can.
0: All right. Well, before we jump into that movie, do you want to kind of introduce yourself a little bit to our audience?
1: Yes. um, I am a podcaster and filmmaker from Long Island, New York, and Steven Spielberg is my, he is my favorite filmmaker, and I just adore all, like, 90% of his movies. There's only a few movies of his I'm not a huge fan of, but... Something like this, Catch Me, if you can... Well, I was curious because we actually had a different movie planned, but you were like, I want to do something kind of Christmasy," And I'm like, okay, we'll do something Christmasy." And we were talking uh, ideas back and forth what to do. I threw out a Tales of a Crypt episode. I didn't even name the episode. It was uh, an All Through the House. I think it's the second episode directed by Robert Zemeckis. And it's actually... I like that episode more than certain slasher films, and it is a slasher movie or it's a slasher TV episode done in like 45 minutes, but you're like, no, let's try and keep it a movie. I'm like, okay. And I'm like, all right, on one of the podcasts to do Please Rewind, the RF4M retro show. I'm already doing a few Christmas movies. So I'm like, all right, let me try and think outside the box here for what can I do. And then I'm like, you know what? Catch me if you can is a Christmas movie because it deals with a lot of family and uh, togetherness, and redemption, so I thought, you know, this is fair, this can be considered a Christmas movie, and this is something you could get into a a serious debate about if it is considered a Christmas movie or not, and I thought, you know what, I'm always down to talk Spielberg, so that's the movie uh, we chose to do today.
0: Yeah, and I do want to add, you know, I love Tales from the Crypt, I'm a huge Tales from the Crypt fan, and it bums me out, but I feel like, I got to stick with the movie theme. One of these days, I'm going to do a show. Um, The only tough part about that is uh, I was a huge TV watcher and still am. So that would be probably overwhelming to add that. But someday that's on my bucket list to do. So just wanted to add that did want anyone to at me and say, "You don't like tales from the crypt? What's wrong with you?"
1: <laughs> yeah, like the the really irate uh tales from the crypt <laughs> getting at you You're like, "No, wow, snobbery. I'm just going to hang out with people. We're going to be cool like that."
0: <laughs> well, since we're talking about Catch Me If You Can, which by the way, I cannot believe came out in 2002. Uh, um, yeah. let's uh <laughs> yeah. It's kind of scary. Well, um seems like it seriously seems like this movie came out recently to me. But yeah, so I was kind of surprised by that date. Uh, so I wanted to throw it over to you. When did you first see this movie?
1: I did not see this in theaters because this is at a time where my sisters, especially my sister Stephanie, she was into like Leo as the team heartthrob. I mean, when we saw Titanic as a family uh, in the movie theaters, Crying, she was crying her eyes out, and like me being like a little <laughs> crappy brother, like you yeah, know, I'm good. I'm glad he drowned. And like even that, like that, I know that door, like and sidebar that door, that door would not gonna have supported them The buoyancy would not have worked. I know. I don't know why people saying they could have fit on the door. Nobody wouldn't, anyway. <laughs> um, and so, and like this, and Gangs New York came out. I think both came out in 2002. And it wasn't until like maybe I saw The Aviator that in 2004 or like 2005 when it came out in video and I'm like okay leo can really act that he's not just a a teen idol star that's why i went back it must have been around 2005 when i checked this out on home video uh eventually
0: yeah i, w- I was trying to remember because i was i guess i was about 16 when this came out i saw titanic in theaters i had seen romeo and juliet as well um I, the man in the iron mask uh i really loved his performance in the beach i feel like i saw that i was probably 17 or 18 when i saw that loved gangs of new york so i think by catch me if you can i was pretty familiar with him um but i don't know that that would have made me rush out and see this like i don't think i had the awareness at the time that it was even a steven spielberg movie and the plot didn't look like something at the time that i was like i don't know i don't know if i want to see that so I, i think i saw this a lot later I can't remember the exact moment when I saw it, but I, I think I was very surprised by how much I liked it. That's what I remember the most about it.
1: I, I can totally understand that. And actually I like the beach. I know people who are fans of the book may not be uh, the biggest fans of that movie, but I really enjoyed that as a Danny Boyle movie and as a very, strong yeah. Leonardo DiCaprio and Robert Carlisle. I can watch him in just about anything. So that's why I really dig the beach. And even Romeo plus Juliet, Romeo and Juliet, whatever you want way how you want to pronounce it, because I know see people like hipsters <laughs> like that. It's Romeo plus Juliet, and I'm like, okay, oh guy. if you really, if, that, <laughs> if that's a deal you want to, uh, a hill you want to die on, sure. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, 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 it's it's almost weekly what I have, I have to say to myself in my head in order not to get to argue, argument like, do you bite your thumb at me, sir? And so. it's it's all because of Romeo and Juliet, the the, uh, Baz Luhrmann one with uh, Leonardo DiCaprio. So it's just just so (laughs) funny you bring that up.
0: (laughs) Well, okay. So for this movie, I think I'm going to read the synopsis really quick, and then I'm going to jump into a couple of quick facts about it. Uh, Frank Abagnale Jr. worked as a doctor, lawyer, and a co-pilot for a major airline all before his 18th birthday. A master of deception, he was also a brilliant forger, whose skills gave him his first real claim to fame. At the age of 17, Frank Abagnale Jr. became the most successful bank robber in the history of the U.S. Of the US I'm sorry. Uh, FBI agent Carl Hanredy makes it his prime mission to capture Frank and bring him to justice, but Frank is always one step ahead of him. Yeah, pretty good I, yeah i think it's a pretty
1: way good way of summarizing everything that happens in this movie
0: yeah um and we'll get into the differences between reality and this movie a little bit uh it seems like for some of it the, the ages are a little bit different but we'll we'll dive into that uh one quick fact that i had was according to the real frank abagnale jr approximately 80 percent of the movie is true what are your thoughts on that
1: that's crazy because you think like there's no way he's able to pull off all of this because you think for a movie, some of them is embellished or expanded upon or something that's made to be more dramatic for a movie. Because you think of – it was – I remember something that uh, Barbara Dafina, one of the frequent producers of Martin Scorsese movies, she says like certain things, especially if you're doing a biopic movie, things that happen on Tuesday in real life need to happen on Friday in the movie – you kind of have to move things around a little bit to make the movie more enjoyable. Otherwise, you'd just be watching a documentary. And to have Frank go on record saying 80% of what you see in the movie is what happened, I find that utterly fascinating. And it's something that you, as a viewer and a person who enjoys the movie, you, something you'd want to check out on your own uh, just to see if there's... What else did he do out there and what else did he accomplish as a criminal?
0: Yeah, I would say, though, he is... Famous for being a con man specifically. (laughs) So I'm not sure how much I trust his word that 80% of it is true.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And there's there's only one aspect of him as a con man that I I will question. We'll kind of get to it. One of the identities he assumes, because if that is true, there is something just like really, really sketchy by, but I'm going to put a pin in that and let the suspense build what I mean to that. And until we get there.
0: Okay, no worries. So, the film shows Frank Abagnale Jr. on the FBI's Most Wanted list, but in real life, however, he never made that list because it's only for violent criminals.
1: Yeah, I mean, you want to make it as dramatic as possible, so... Sure. But, like, I bet you there was probably numerous people in the FBI office like, Frank, who? Like, you wouldn't be able to pick him out of a lineup or anything, so... But yeah. for viewers, it does make it a little more like, ooh, he's really up there and he's really uh, uh, rattling cages or something like that with his actions as a check forger.
0: Yeah, I mean, that that distinction is interesting because, I mean, yeah, that makes sense. The, on the most wanted list, you would want it to be like the worst of the worst. But, you know, despite how much he stole, it, it still doesn't put him in the... Uh, in the danger category, which I think is something interesting about Frank Abignell Jr. is that he's not, he's not violent. He's like this big, high-profile criminal, but he didn't really, his crimes kind of, I mean, I guess they have victims, but I hate to say it's a completely victimist crime because he stole millions of dollars, but it's just not the same. I think that's what keeps this movie, it has dark moments, but I think that's part of what keeps it a little bit light, Is is that aspect. He's not, you never see him like throwing a whole lot of punches or anything.
1: No, and like it, was, it is funny. Like, yeah, he was on the FBI's most wanted list. I'm like, yeah, Whitey Bulger and, and and other really hardcore criminals were on the FBI's wanted list. And right, you're really going to keep him in the same category. I think there is potentially victims out there that like is it kind of goes into what I'm saying before, uh, based upon one of his identities that he's chosen. But I mean, yes, as criminals go, these he is not like the criminals from heat or anything like they're gonna shoot (laughs) as they try to escape or anything like that
0: true true uh the last quick fact that i had was 17 year old frank tells brenda he's 28 years old in the movie which was leonardo dicaprio's true age when catch me if you can premiered in 2002
1: wow i'm just kind of blown away by like just how young he started not thinking. I know.
0: That. I mean he yeah. I mean we'll get into him a little bit more when he, we go on, but I mean he started on a was it Family Ties or I can't remember what the show was called. Um I know Family Ties Michael J. Fox was on that. Oh, sorry. Yeah, you're right. Uh you know what uh Golly, what was it called? I'm going to look. Growing Pains. That's growing what it was. Pains. There we go. Yeah, it's he got his started
1: the back is screaming that right now. Uh-
0: I know. And I yeah, yeah, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> you're right, you're absolutely right. Yeah, have us um, ourselves <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, he started extremely young. Um, and it, it's also a testament to how young he looked in this movie. I mean, he doesn't look 28, you know
1: No, he looks like 23 the most.
0: Yeah, he, he just had such a baby face for such a long time that uh, that enabled him to play roles like this. But you're right. He's also very young. I mean, it's a really big, meaty role for somebody that's 28 even.
1: Exactly. and But there are certain, like I guess, techniques that he would use later on in his career that are still kind of apparent that... It's something that I noticed with Leonardo DiCaprio, especially certain roles, that he has a very kind of scratchy voice if he wants to articulate certain words. Whereas, like they're at the bottom of his throat, if he really wants to uh, enunciate something, or the opposite of enunciate, but he, especially if you look at how he pronounces he pronounces words in this, and then you say something in The Departed, or even in The Revenant, where he like he's he's working in the back of his throat as to really almost like draw the audience in and when it comes to like you're hanging on every word that he says there because he kind of slows down his his uh rate of speech at the same time and that's all apparent even in this movie
0: i agree yeah yeah no absolutely um yeah i mean there's a reason why fans were clamoring for so long for him to get an oscar he's just got so many incredible performances and this is definitely one of them i think this is one of the one one of the first ones I think where you saw got to see so many different sides of him because of the nature of the role that he plays in this movie.
1: Exactly, and I'm still mad that he did not get one for The Aviator. I feel like that's the one he should have <laughs> gotten for it. No disrespect to The Revenant, but it definitely seems like you know what we've kind of goofed, and here is your Oscar. And I still love when he he accepts the Oscar he gets up on stage and he's got that little, just little laugh to himself. Like, Ooh! like he's just can't, he's like, can't believe it. That's actually happened. And like, ah, there we go. There's the, there's the, the, the young kid that we've seen. And what's eating Gilbert grape there for a moment. while he accepts his Oscar. At least that's how I viewed it when he, uh, uh, accepted the statue.
0: Yeah, no, I agree with you. I think the revenant, um, the thing that stands out the most about that movie is the visuals a little bit, m- even more than the, performances so it is kind of surprising that that would be his role but i i kind of felt like i always had a theory about him winning an oscar for that movie i thought that uh, a lot of the roles he plays like this one uh show him show that the character has like a lot of like affluence you know what i mean like uh in the great gatsby or uh even wolf of wall street like he did a lot of these flashier roles and while they're really good it seems like I don't know. It, it seems to me like a lot of times Oscars go towards one's characters of like, that are more long suffering than that. And so it kind of made sense to me why he got it for the Revenant because he uh, suffers a lot in that movie.
1: Yeah. And I, I think it was honest trailers that like poked fun of, I, I think they were doing a video on the Wolf of Wall Street. Like, Watch Leonardo DiCaprio as he shouts his way to an Oscar nomination and just a montage <laughs> of him yelling in the Wolf of Wall Street. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I can totally see that. That's that you're not off base in that uh observation there.
0: Yeah, I I also read an article when he uh won for the Revenant. It just said, "I think I'm going to get an Oscar. I think I screamed and cried enough." <laughs> <laughs> Very similar. Yeah.
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> well, let's shift gears a little bit. I want to talk about uh Steven Spielberg, your favorite director.
1: Yeah, and so I'm just like, "All right, and like uh Where to begin? Uh, um,
0: Well, I I have a place I want to begin. Do you know what I'm going to say? I do not. Uh, Remember, we had a little quiz last time. Uh, Yes. And I'm going to make you take it again. I'm going to do this until a a listener finally says, please don't do that quiz part anymore. (laughs) When you talk about Steven Spielberg. Because we've talked about him several times. You and I talked about Duel. Um, What's the other movie that we've talked about on here Indiana Jones. That's what oh, it was. Yes. Uh, uh, all three, right?
1: Uh, we spoke about them, but I, I i did not review them on your show. That was. Uh, it was Kara. It was Kara.
0: Uh, but but I was th- I was saying so so we've done the Indiana Jones trilogy, uh, Jurassic Park, Jurassic Park, and Duel, and yep. now this movie. So yeah. a lot, a lot, yeah. and because cool. we talk, yeah. So it's you, David, and Kara, I think I've talked about him on the show. And because we do it so many times, um, I ask every single person that brings up a Steven Spielberg movie uh, this this question. So as of 2018, he's directed 11 films that were nominated for the Academy Award for Best Picture. Can you name those 11 films?
1: <sighs> okay. Okay, you're I in think- it to win it. Okay, I think I got this. All right. Um, Schindler's List. Yes. Saving Private Ryan.
0: Yes. Um, the post. Nope. Oh, wait, wait. Let me let me see. Oh yeah, the post. You're right. Ooh,
1: okay, there. Sorry, sorry. Oh no, you're you're good. Um, so what? That's three right there. Um, E.T. Yes. Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yep. Uh, Close Encounters of the
0: Third Kind. Let me see if that's on here. Suspense is killing me. I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you're good. I'm just like, all right. I don't think I don't see it on there. Keep, okay. Keep all
1: right. Um, was Jaws nominated? Yes. Okay. So all right, that's six right there. Oh, as I punched my microphone? <laughs> oh, and you.
0: you're just so excited.
1: Exactly. Um. I think this is about the way I got last time and I and I, I got stuck. Um, hmm.
0: Jeez. Uh, uh, one of them is a city.
1: Munich. Ah, there we yep. go. Oh, yes, yes. 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 That's sorry. That's uh,
0: sad. the other one has you're you're missing a uh one that has to do with a conflict and an animal.
1: Warhorse. Yes. There we go. Okay. Okay. There's, there's, there's a nice synonyms right there for it. There okay. you go. Um, 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 uh, President Lincoln. Duh. Yep. Wow. Wow. Um. I'm trying to think? Well, what else? There's two more, and I'm just it's not coming to me right now.
0: That's okay. Do you do you pass?
1: I pass.
0: The the last ones I can't really think of. Okay. Bridge of spies.
1: Oh, geez.
0: And then, um, and you said Schindler's List already, right? Yes. Okay. So that's 10. I feel like, we're, oh, the color purple. Oh. One of these days. But, you know, it, it, I think it speaks to his career, right? Like his yeah. movies, were a lot of them are so different that they don't just fire off one after another the way that some directors do.
1: No, but he is one of those people that. He won't do anything for three
0: years, and then 18 months, three movies will come out. Right, true. That's true. So which one won before we proceed?
1: Uh, Schindler's... No, uh, Schindler's List? Yes. That's the only <laughs> one that won?
0: Yep. Wow. Um, so, you know, talking about Steven Spielberg, you've, you've taken our quiz. Um. I also wanted to say that when he was making this movie... Uh, he mentioned that he he does a lot of movies where he'll do like a really serious movie and then like a lighter movie. Like I think he did Schindler's List and then, you know, Jaws, uh, not Jaws, uh, Jurassic Park. Mm-hmm. And this was kind of similar in that respect because he had do- just done Minority Report. And now he's like, I want to do something totally different. And he was hired by Leo. Like Leo was, uh, you know, taking the script around and looking for a director. And uh so he, he didn't even think of Steven Spielberg as an option, but he mentioned it to him and he was super interested. Uh, he had sent a signed picture of himself to Steven Spielberg for for his daughter. Uh, she was seven and a really big Leo fan. <laughs> and uh, um, I saw an interview where Steven Spielberg mentioned that. And he, uh, he actually had already really wanted to work with Leo. So they, they sat down and they talked about it and... You know, they, they they got to work. They really wanted to do it,
1: which I can totally see because there were other filmmakers in the running, like Gore Provesky, who would do the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. At one point, was uh was uh, he was going to do it, and then uh, was was David Fincher's name thrown around too? Oh,
0: yeah. I don't I don't know if I saw that. Oh, cool.
1: Uh, okay, I'm reading Wikipedia. Uh, by April 2000, David Fincher was attached to the director over the course of a few months, but dropped out in favor to do Panic Room. And,
0: Ugh, what a mistake! Sorry, I, I <laughs> a
1: big panic room. I mean, okay, okay, I'm sorry. No, 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 it's fine. But I totally get the criticism. But I just, but it's such a an antithesis, it to compare it to Fight Club because that's 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 on the commentary track. David Fincher says, like, making fighting Fight Club. I just feel like I was waiting for people to unload trucks the entire time while shooting <laughs> trucks, so we can do one eighth of a page for this one setup, like. You think of that montage of when um, the narrator is trying to track down Tyler Durden, going to all the cities he's been at, versus we'll do this entire movie in in one house. I I understand that wanting to do something like that, rather than this movie, where it's another uh, jet sailing kind of movie where you're going to be in locations for fractions of a second on screen and everything. But I think stylistically and tonally, this is much more in Spielberg's warehouse than Fincher because. I don't know, Fincher did this. I feel like it'd just be a lot of greens and yellows and it'd be a very morose uh, kind of movie.
0: Yeah, definitely. This this movie has some really poignant moments, but there's enough lightness and a, enough fun that kind of keeps you from sinking down into the depths of despair because there's some heavy stuff that happens. And I, I'm excited to talk about that too. But But yeah, I think Steven Spielberg's touch on it Uh, I think that's kind of what gives it its lasting, that lasting quality. I think if it were too serious or too dark, I I don't know that it would have really resonated with people the same way.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, it's just like, because Spielberg knows how to make a movie a very serious movie, whether it be Schindler's List, Saving Private Ryan, The Color Purple, or Munich, but then there are very playful movies like this, or... Um, the Adventures of Tintin uh, Hook for example mm-hmm. and as very few filmmakers who are able to go back and forth to do that kind of tone most filmmakers will find their niche and stick to it but Spielberg is exemplifying with this one that he is malleable when it comes to the kind of stories he can tell and it's a conversation I've had with one of my co-hosts Guy Milks on Please Rewind we've had personally the same that Guy says that every filmmaker has one Hitchcock movie in them and and it can be in varying different degrees. And this is definitely Spielberg. Like Spielberg's had Hitchcocking techniques through all of his movies and comes to suspension, et cetera. But this is definitely his Hitchcock movie. And it's definitely his take on like North by Northwest. That's how I see this movie.
0: Oh, I I could totally see that. Yeah, I, I agree. Another fact I had about this movie, Frank Abagnale Jr. was on Johnny Carson nine times in total uh in the 70s uh johnny encouraged him to write a book he was like he said hey you need to write your life story and uh john um frank was like no i'm only like you know in in my late 20s and he was like no you got to do it now like while you're hot basically so you know um after that that later led to the movie or at least a screenplay coming out. And Steven Spielberg really attributed those appearances on Carson uh, to the book and then eventually the movie being made. So uh, when the movie was finished, he sent out two copies before it even hit theaters, like he burned, the, you know, on, on a disc. And he sent one copy to Frank and he sent the other copy to Johnny Carson and with a note that said, this movie wouldn't have been possible without you. Huh. Yeah, I saw that on a behind the scenes. I thought that was really cool. And a weird fact about me that I've probably mentioned before on this show, I was an avid Johnny Carson fan as a child, which is strange, but I watched that a lot as a kid. So, Well, let's see. What should we talk about next? Do you want to talk a little bit about the real Frank Abagnale before we jump into the plot? Certainly. All right. So, you know, as you know, from watching the movie, just like in the movie, he ended up being an American security consultant. Uh, In his time as a con man, he assumed no more than, no fewer than uh, eight identities, including airline pilot, physician, U.S. Bureau of Prisons agent, and a lawyer. Um, For the, uh, in preparation for this movie, Leo talked to the real Frank. First, he had a conversation with him over the phone, then he actually asked him, can I just hang out with you? So he spent like three days with him, um, just following his mannerisms and really... You know, trying to get to know him, he followed him with a recorder. And he was saying uh, Leo was saying in one of the interviews that a big thing about Frank was just, you know, the way that he the way that he spoke and the way that he moved and how he would really reel people in by using misdirection, which I think you see a lot in the movie. And it's not like he was perfect. It's not like he could really do the things a doctor could do or a lawyer could do or whatever. It was just, he was disarmingly charming. And he also was good at sort of, you know, taking your direction here and there and like pointing you, you know, kind of confusing you and throwing you off to where you're not thinking straight and questioning him and catching that that he's fooling you. And so he just found him like very fascinating.
1: Which I could totally see because I think that's the... Entire point of that necklace gag that shows up several times in the movie hmm. where it's like, hey, I think this slipped off your neck and you you put the necklace around the person in question. So you make them feel comfortable and relaxed and special in that moment. And then you're able to get whatever um, service or money out of them because you're that charming and like somebody that's that, that sweet and cool and everything. You would want to help them and want to be um, helpful in their uh, travels.
0: Yeah, definitely. Well, now I'm like, there's so many things I want to ask, but I feel like I want to wait until we're talking about the movie. So do you want to do you want to dive into the movie itself?
1: Let's do that.
0: OK, why don't you start off? What's the first scene you want to talk about?
1: I where where's a good story start at the beginning. And so <laughs> it's so funny you mentioned the Johnny Carson show because this movie opens up with a recreation of a seventies TV show. It's not Johnny Carson, but I forget the name of the program where it's Frank and to, uh, uh, uh I would say fake Franks. I did not mean to be a- alliterative there. And the whole purpose <laughs> of the show is to figure out which is the real Frank, which is curious because, even Frank is kind of searching for an identity throughout the entire movie. Like, the entire crux of it is based on, like, who am I? And it's kind of finally solved by the end of what he's able to do and who he really is because he's so young and he's kind of searching for himself. But then again, I love it to kind of jump forward and we meet uh, Kyle Handvaddy played by uh, Tom Hanks, which is curious because Handvaddy was not the name of the agent's name. That was changed for the movie. I believe it's based off a football player that Tom Hanks liked and so funny when I think of a kind of a Boston or Massachusetts accent I will just kind of slip into Tom Hanks's uh vocal patterns for this movie and it's so cool to see like this is kind of the end of their kind of cat and mouse chase but we still see that That Tom Hanks could be duped by uh, Lino DiCaprio faking to be sick just so he can get out of the cell and try to escape the prison. I really like how it just kind of sets up their relationship uh, right off the bat.
0: Yeah, I agree. Um, Yeah, like in that moment, it's like you almost right away, you, you get a sense of who... Uh, leo's character is because you, you know you see that that opening seventy show you talked about where it's setting up that he's a con man you, so you know going in what this is going to be about then it flashes to where he's in that french prison and he's sick and he he looks so young and so helpless i feel like in that moment that um you know uh, tom hanks is being so hard on him but I think you pick up right away. You're like, no, Tom Hanks, don't believe him. Like, we just saw in that previous scene that he, he's a deceiver, so don't don't fall for this. But then, you know, he just can't help it, and he's like, oh, yeah, okay, take him out of here. And he's comforting him and telling him, like, oh, don't worry, we're going to get you back to the U.S., blah, 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 and then he escapes one last time, and they they still catch him, but you're like, man, this this kid, his <laughs> his routine uh, is really good. But I, but I also feel like... It's an interesting moment because I feel that a lot of times in this movie, there's a a truth wrapped up inside of a lie. And that's how he's able to convince people because he was sick, like he wasn't doing too well in that prison. And, um, you know, he tries to escape again, but he's still he's not feeling great. So it's like it was true. He wasn't feeling good, but it wasn't that he was feeling so good he had to be taken out of that cell. So I think, you know what I mean? Do you agree with that? Like, I, I feel like that's why he's so effective at it.
1: Well, I think the best lies have a a hint of truth to um, bait people. And I think that's one of the qualities that Frank has that he's gonna I'm gonna show you a little bit. I'm I'm gonna show you an inch, but I'm gonna take a mile when it comes to mm-hmm. trying to pontificate this kind of story that I'm gonna take you on and that he's I guess he's been he's been in prison for four years. He's gotten to be a really good actor in order to get out of the cell. Right. So but and it's so funny. Whenever I think, like, uh, I need a doctor, I, just, I think of Tom Tommy, like, give me a doctor now. And, like, his very thick accents coming through when he's saying that. But I love that moment where we follow him after they take him out of the cell. They bring him into the infirmary, and we see, like, the prison officials and uh, guards wash their hands to get the lice off of them. That's all done in one shot. It's all one long take. Mm-hmm. And it's something that Spielberg does, with his long takes for the most part is that he'll a, he'll keep him short. Like he will keep him under two minutes, two minutes. And then he'll do multiple framings within it. So like we'll go from wide shot to an over the shoulder or to a profile shot back to a wide because like we follow him in, we drop uh, Frank off on the bed. We follow the officials to the sink. We have uh, a hand ready to come around to confront the warden to say like, I need, I've gone too I've, taken too much time and gone too far for him just to die here then we hear something we hear the door open we see him discover that frank's gone then he pushes that close up when carl says ah frank that he's just like amused by the idea that frank thinks he's going to try and escape the prison and it's just this little flourishes of the movies that i uh, love and try to do in my own work it's probably terribly but it is it's a marvel to see in something that I just love to watch and try and break down. I mean, when I saw *Shinless list was back in the movie theaters recently. And I was watching that movie trying to break down like how he would construct scenes. And then halfway through it, I'm like, I'm just lost. I'm caught up in the movie. I'm not even going to try and break it down. I'm just kind of wrapped up and crying my eyes out for 90% of that movie. And so I guess we'll kind of move on. And so we kind of flash back to uh, 1963 and we see the young, younger, I should say, Frank Abagnale with his parents as his father is inducted into the uh, New Rochelle Rotary Club. Um, what was it? It was not Hall of Fame, but.
0: I don't know. I thought, I thought that, that it was he was getting into the club at all, but I, uh, I'm okay. not sure. And,
1: and it's so curious because uh, New Rochelle was actually not too far from where my mom grew up in Pearl River, New York. It's just it's like half an hour, 45 minutes north of New York City itself. and my grandfather was part of the Elks Club, which is kind of similar to the uh, Rotary Club. So it was something that was curious, about, like, wow, this is so like my family here. I can totally see this. And it's curious to see the relationship between Frank's parents before the divorce, which uh, another thing with uh, Spielberg, it's one of his motifs in movies are divorced parents. Like so he was the his family, his parents uh, got divorced and everything. And so that's something that becomes a prevalent uh, motif in all his movies. Mm. And it's curious to see it how it here because we find out, yes, that Frank's father meets his mother and six weeks later they're married and moving to New York, uh, back to America. And it's kind of curious, like I've seen one people, one person bring up the fact that like, did Frank's mother marry Frank's father just so she could become, she can get out of France and move to America or not?
0: You know, I'm I'm glad you brought that up. I have a lot of thoughts <laughs> on his mother. I I feel that they we're we're looking all at all of this through Frank's eyes, but I think there's a lot of stuff happening here with his parents' relationship and what they're really doing versus how he sees them. Do you, do you agree with that?
1: Yeah, for sure. Like
0: it, it looks like a Norman Rockwell painting in the beginning, and his dad tells this story over and over, which almost seems like he's just affirming what happened more than he's telling what really happened. You know, that she was this beautiful woman. She was blonde. Every man in the room wanted her. He didn't even speak French, but he brought her home. And like, can you believe it? Um, Yeah. I mean, it's hard for me to imagine that someone would meet someone in six weeks later, really be in love with them. (laughs) But it seemed like for his dad, it was, it, a lot of the things he did, it was about like this dream, this goal he had. So like, in a way it's like, is he really in love with her or, or, or is he also kind of guilty of being in love with the idea of who she was when he brought her back over here? You know?
1: Yeah. I mean, cause there are, there are numerous times where we're seeing the subjective, uh, a subjective camera from Frank's point of view of viewing his parents, especially when they're dancing um, around Christmas and, Frank's mother spills the wine, and then they 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 don't clean it up. They kind of they dance over, it and they kind of like put the stain further into the carpet. But there are times when the camera kind of just kind of pulls back, and it's much more objective. And the mm. fact that the colors become a little more muted, and then the fact that we find out that Frank's mother is sleeping with the the head of the uh, New Rochelle Rotary Club, and that she's been cheating on him with it, which kind of I presume that's one of the reasons that led to their divorce.
0: Yeah, but also his father, uh, he gets really high up there. But then you find out that some of the reason he gets high up there is because he's committing tax fraud, and he gets in trouble with the IRS, and that's how they lose their house. That's how they lose their job. So I think another part of it is that maybe Frank's mother came over here, and then uh, Frank's father builds this great life for them, and then that's all taken away after he commits i I mean that's that's like a felony right and so they lose everything and i think his mother starts seeing one of his old colleagues from his old job and then she she basically jumps ship she's like this boat's sinking i'm out of here which yeah it's like were they really in love or did she just i mean back then like uh, you know women could work at this point, but they're all like secretaries and stuff. I think the only real way for a woman to kind of like get ahead is to marry someone. And I think when the life for herself that she imagined wasn't happening, she basically moved on to another opportunity. And I think there's there's sort of, and maybe this is me reading into it, but like that whole, when I said earlier, there, there's sort of like a Norman Rockwell painting view that Frank has. I feel like that's kind of like, a metaphor in the movie for like the American dream that a lot of characters in this movie seem to chase. And it's like, there's this idea, like you just work really hard and like you achieve your dream and all the success, but that doesn't happen in this movie. (laughs) Like it seems like, you know, his dad ends up having to sort of like cheat the system and commit tax fraud to get the life that they want. And then that ends up, you know, coming back to haunt him. And then his mother, you know, she wants that life of, of affluence that, uh, that she was used to. And so she leaves him and starts a new family with someone that can give her that. And then Frank ends up spending most of his time trying to get all that stuff back. So everyone's sort of chasing this American dream in the movie. And I feel like, I don't know. I feel like this is like the height of that, even in the fact that like Frank is so obsessed with James Bond and like the whole Pan Am thing. I don't know. I felt like a lot of it was like maybe a little bit alluding to how, a lot of that's, like, not real, you know? <laughs> and so, I don't know. That I mean, was kind of long-winded, but basically, I think maybe his mother, you know, was like his father in that she was chasing a dream, too, and then when she saw that it wasn't going to happen, she uh, she left.
1: Which, I know, if you try and recontextualize it to, like, 2018, and, like, it makes Frank's mother look like an opportunist, and in a negative way, and so I don't think... <sighs> I, want I to
0: feel like a bad yeah. person. Well, and I think a lot of times in movies uh in general like when I think the way they handle like when a woman cheats versus when a guy cheats pretty differently. Um I do think that we're supposed to see the mother negatively, but I would say, you know, In modern day, we'd view this whole situation differently, like you're saying, because now people can, like, make their own fortunes and they don't have to necessarily rely on the other person. Back then, they really did. So I think that there is a layer to it that Frank's character doesn't see or the movie's not really showing. But, yeah, I I view her less negatively than maybe the story leads you to. But I think... I mean, we're looking at this from Frank's point of view and he sees it pretty negatively. I mean, that's what it comes down to. Like, their relationship falling apart is a catalyst for him running away and trying to get everything back. And his way of getting everything back is if he was rich and his father was rich again, somehow his mother would just come back. Which is debatable, yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, that Frank is lying to himself thinking that this will piece his family back together. Even though... Frank's father knows it won't work like that, but doesn't want to crush his son's dreams because he's doing something that even he couldn't do. And he's proud of him. Sure. That but I think what exemplifies their uh, Frank and his mother's relationship is that when he walks in on his mother and it's that long take with just Frank sitting down um, in the chair with his back to his mother and his mother is like pacing the kitchen back and forth, trying to say like, is everything okay? Like, like do you want something to eat? Like, I'm going to go out. Do you want money for records? And everything. And she's trying to buy his silence and buy his love at that moment. And the mm-hmm. stillness of that scene is meant to underline how awkward that is for a child to deal with that. And then punctuated with, like, he takes a cigarette from her. And he's like, You said you were going to quit, he puts it out, and he slams the door in it, uh, her face. And it's curious to see that. And it is, it is heartbreaking to see it. Then when we see the when he's confronted with a divorced lawyer saying like, you have to choose which uh, parent you want to live with resulting in him running away. And going back to what you were saying earlier, that seems that the, that Frank is chasing the American dream. It seems like everybody's trying to have that. And like Frank tries to fill that void with material possessions because as a result of his uh, cons, I think that's why he's so popular at having that house party down in Atlanta him dressing up as james bond and this movie shows that like that american dream is false or a a, a terrible thing to cling on and not the alien but to actually cling on to something uh <laughs> I, I realized that when i said that like no that's not that's not going to come out correctly but yeah and it's kind of like pull back the curtain saying like yeah this is a terrible uh ideal because Frank is a baby boomer at that point of like being that age of like being the son of like uh, a war a, a ww veteran and everything. And it like like, you know, yeah, take on the world and everything. So it makes sense to like, kind of pull back the world. Like, you know, what? maybe we were wrong and maybe we just kind of, everything was not so idealized, which is kind of the antithesis of a lot of movies that Spielberg was involved with in the 1980s, which were a look back of the fifties. Like, he produced Gremlins, which is a kind of a throwback to like how Kingston Falls is a, is a throwback to 50s movies and uh, monster movies. And Back to the Future, both of them being used the same backlot for their, back, for their movies. Like um, Hill Valley and Kingston Falls is the same backlot on Universal. And so, and so on and so forth. And I think it's afterwards, like once Spielberg got older, realized, you know what? Maybe we weren't right. And this is an example of like, Maybe that Norman Rockwell-esque kind of uh, America dream kind of died and is the slow reveal of it.
0: Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, Frank's big character arc in this movie, at least from my perspective, was to slowly accept how things are, you know, accept that this idealized version of his mother and father maybe didn't exist, you know, maybe because, I mean, she does cheat on him. But it's not like she cheats on him and stays with him. It was like towards the end of their relationship. For all we know, he knew, you know, that she was on the way out. We don't we don't see those conversations. So I think, you know, he can not accept that. And then a lot of the movie, he's just talking about making money. And, you know, he's he wants to be a pilot. He wants to be, you know, famous and looked at and appreciated and to have all these flashy things just like his father wanted and just like his mother wanted when he's finally able to like you know, stop being chased, and he's finally able to, like, stop and look at his life, he's able to, like, move forward, and I think it is accepting, like, his relationship with his parents, that it's not going to go back to how it was, and that maybe it wasn't how he thought it was anyway, um, and that his life is okay, and that he's okay, even if that's the case, you know, which I think is pretty relatable, I mean, you know, not to get too personal, but my, you know, my parents divorced when I was, like, I think I was four, so it was a long time ago, I had plenty of time to process that, but I was pretty upset about it. So I don't, you know, I don't fault the the movie's point of view for being that way. I think because we're seeing it from his point of view, he has to grow and mature and like, accept how things are. So I think we, as the audience do that with him. So, yeah, no, I agree with you though. I think, uh, I think this is like, a. Uh, I, I do think it's sort of Steven Spielberg, Looking back and going, hmm, like maybe all this stuff wasn't exactly how we thought it was at the time.
1: Yeah, and plus the fact that even at the very end, when Frank is going to run and he's dressed as a pilot again, and Henry ready meets him at the terminal, like Frank is judging him on the fact of him being a bad father because, like, why aren't you with your kids and everything? And he's like, my kids didn't want to see me. My, my family, we've been, my, I've been separated from my wife for years. And I get to see my kids rarely. And, and it's at that point, it's like, nobody's perfect. No. And like that kind of idealized life, not everybody gets to have. Every family is screwed up in one way or the other. It's just because human beings are flawed um, creatures in the first place. I mean, like sure. we tried to, we try to attain something, something called perfection or normalcy, which like, which is, a terrible thing to try and judge yourself by. And I think it's that point when Frank realizes, okay, everybody has their problems. Doesn't mean that makes everybody a bad person. That's why he comes back to work for, uh, Carl at the end of the movie.
0: Yeah. And I think they, they made a really interesting choice with Carl Hanredy's character because, He doesn't just say, like, in the beginning, he's very vague. You know, I lost my family. I had a family. It's like, you're thinking, what, did they die? Like, what happened, right? Um, And then he kind of fibs about going to Chicago to see his daughter. And then he's like, well, she's 15 now. And he's like, well, you said you were going to see her. And he's like, well, that's because it's easier to tell a lie sometimes and be honest. And he says that he actually left them. So I thought that was interesting because in Frank's case, his mother left and in Carl's case, he left his family. So, you know, it's kind of, there's kind of a parallel there. Um, And and you're right. Like he's not perfect. He obviously, he wasn't a great dad. He just left right (laughs) in the same way that his mom wasn't a great mom and that she kind of left and started another family. So, I mean, I think, yeah, it's like, okay, so that's reality. My parents are not perfect and that's never going to change. But does that make them, you know, a horrible human being? No. So does what I did make me a horrible human being? No. Can I come back and live a real life as myself? Yes. So he does that. Yeah, I agree. I feel
1: like we're laying the groundwork to a very emotional emo song right now, like, you're like, not <laughs> perfect. I'm not perfect. And so on, not so a forth. perfect
0: person. <laughs> no. um,
1: yeah. But I guess we can move on until When Frank uh, starts to become a con man, after trying and failing numerous times to uh, write bad checks, which gets nowhere, he realizes, let me impersonate a Pan Am pilot and make Pan Am checks and have hotels cash them for me. And then he starts like, all right, as well as the airport can start cashing these checks. But he smartly never flies Pan Am. He always flies TWA um, and so on and so forth. Fun fact, TWA was Howard Hughes' uh, airline, which uh, oh. played Howard Hughes in the aviator. Boom, share universe. <laughs> <laughs> um, which I love that montage of him like with the uniform and first the first time he tries to go to one bank and the bank manager just, like shuts him down and then sees him again later in the Pan Am uniform but doesn't recognize him. He's like, I'm glad you used our branch. And seeing just how an outfit can change the perception of people, how clothing can change the perception of one person.
0: Right. I think he learns this lesson really young with his dad, you know, when his dad loses his job and he has him dress up as the chauffeur and then they go to the bank and he's like, okay, you open the door and I come out and like, he learns then that appearances matter, but this is like a direct lesson. And I also like, um, the part where he's, uh, Getting rejected trying to cash these checks because I think this this montage is a good example of, you know, making mistakes as a really good teacher, because during all these different instances, I mean, they don't explicitly say it, but I think it really sets the groundwork later for why he's so good at forging checks. Why is he so good? Because he has been found out a bunch of times, you know, and the more that he gets rejected, the more he's honing his craft throughout the movie. So I think by the time he puts on the pilot uniform, I think it makes it a pretty believable transition to where he's like a little bit more confident, knows what to say, knows how to read people because he's gone through so much rejection in the previous scenes.
1: To quote the one only Yoda, the greatest teacher failure is. (laughs)
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I thought that was a smart part to put in there. Because I think this, this plot could be kind of a hard sell, even though it's a true story. You know, it's like, how would a kid get that good at something? Well, by screwing up a lot. And that becomes his teacher in a way. And I I just, I really like that part about it. But yeah, I love, you know, Pan Am is something that, you know, we don't have anymore, but we all kind of know the iconic look and the weight that that uniform carries because we've seen it so many times in movies and in TV shows. And it's just super fun here. And, uh, and yeah, I love the way when he's walking around the airport, they're like, you're a pilot for real. And oh my gosh, can you know, I take a picture with you kind of attitude towards him. And I I love that part.
1: Yeah. I mean, like, it's still seeing an airline pilot in the real world, even like through an airport, you do stop and take notice. But like Pan Am were like, they were like the rock star, at least this movie presented, like they were the rock stars of the sky at this point. And it was so funny. I was going through like a, I guess you could say like a hipster t-shirt website at one point, And I saw one that just had the Pan Am logo on there. And I'm like, I see you. I'm like, it's like people wear glasses <laughs> t-shirts. No, I'm going to get a Pan Am t-shirt. I, I never bought it, but I think I may, I think as this podcast, I may just do that just to be that hipster right there. And so, <laughs> especially like how the uniforms are kind of laid out and complete with the cap, uh, which like, it really draws your eye to like, I, even to the point that Frank's father, when we meet him later on in the movie saying like, these are the most powerful people in New York city, but they keep peeking over their shows to t- take a look at you because just how that outfit is, it draws everybody's attention and they want to know where you're going, Frank, where are you going? Frank As walking would say, and okay. It, it, it's curious how walking certain, certain phrases or sentences has his spin on it. Like his delivery it, it makes you question like what? No human would say that, but somehow you said it and it works. I
0: don't know why. Well, there's a reason that, you know, there's so many great SNL skits uh, where the cast members are him or he- saying different things the way he would. So, yeah.
1: <laughs> I got a fever. I own a prescription. It's more cowbell. And things of that nature. <laughs> I know it's a terrible impression, but I still do it anyway. Much to the chagrin of everybody around me. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I'll give it a B plus.
1: Okay, I'll take that. I was a B-plus okay. student for most of my life. <laughs> <clears throat> and so yeah it, it is curious to see that and i love when he uh becomes like a deadhead and he's pretty much just takes a taxi ride with one of the other flights and it's actually the first time he's in a plane and he's in the cockpit and to see him react to when they take off for the first time he's trying to hold his fear like trying not to show how scared he is at that moment but i always found that moment um undeniably charming
0: yeah also when they're like have a seat and he's like uh and then finally the the uh the attendant comes and brings a chair. <laughs> I thought that, I noticed that this time I thought that was funny cuz he's like, "Oh, I'm supposed to know where to sit. There's no chair. What do I do?" And <laughs> then she comes in with the chair and I thought that that's a nice touch. I like that.
1: <laughs> right. And then like how he ends up like losing his virginity to the flight attendant and everything. But he tried mile high club. Yeah. Exactly. And he's like, "This is the best date I've ever been on." <laughs> like he has to kind of like childlike moment there in the midst of their uh, coitus and everything and she just kind of laughs at him and we immediately cut away so we see him becoming a man as this movie goes along and him growing up to become an adult.
0: Right, yeah she would be very dismayed to later find out he was 16 and also in legal trouble but anyway, we digress
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We're just all hand ready at the FBI office uh, realizing that uh, the check fraud is going around to the federal uh, banking system, and he's the only one seems to be... He's the only one taking this threat kind of seriously, and everybody else mm-hmm. in his department just kind of laughs at it. Like, so wait, those numbers at the bottom of the check actually mean something. And like, you can feel the eye roll going on with, with Tom Hanks right there, and the fact that Hanks can sell frustrated so easily, and it's, even in a very physical way, because I think that's what makes him such a great comedian, and Uh, It's something that Joss Whedon says, like, if an actor can do comedy, drama is a lot easier. Drama is the easy part. If you do comedy, you can do drama. And and Mm -hmm. Hanks kind of exemplifies that, especially in this movie. And I love a little bit later on when Frank and uh, Carl come face to face when they're out in California.
0: Right, yeah, this is a great scene because you're like, how's he going to get out of this? And then the way he does is so great. Well, I, and I think they re- the movie really sets up uh, Carl Hannity as like very humorless and frustrated, like you mentioned. And even that scene where his colleagues are joking around with him in the car and he's basically like, shut up <laughs> to them. And you're like, man, what the heck? You know? My
1: favorite joke. He-
0: yeah, oh yeah, go ahead. <laughs>
1: <laughs> like, knock, knock. Who's there? go fuck yourself and just keep driving. <laughs> like, it's something that I, that like a, a few friends of mine will say to each other every now and then when we are going, uh, we're, if we're speaking too, for too long, one of us will say that to each other. We're like, all right, we, we get it. We'll move on. Um, uh, But even he's setting up like with him and his colleagues trying to track him down.
0: Yeah. And you know, uh he, he values this job in his position and he, you know, I think he's picking up on something that the others are not yet. And that's that maybe this isn't as exciting as like taking down a mob boss or something, but this is a high profile crime and they're not realizing it yet. And Carl Hannity is a little bit more serious and a little bit more in tune with what's happening. So he is. And, um, and I think it just, it it lets us get to know him as a character, how he's going to be such a great match for someone who's like basically the opposite. And so when they, they get to the hotel room. Or I'm sorry. They get to the hotel and they're asking around, and then they they kind of find out that he's still there, right?
1: Yeah. And uh, one thing before we go any further, um, like you mentioned, like one of his colleagues is being punished. That's yeah. why he got this task. Uh, this he's part of this little task force, and the uh, the younger gentleman in the back with the uh, hat and glasses. Uh, this is like his first. Uh, job in the field and like carl hammer is like jesus christ like this you like they scrape the bottom of the barrel for you two and fun fact the young i forget the actor's name the younger guy he was in uh band of brothers produced by scenes oh. and, Tom Hanks. and it's that's like, good he remembered him yeah it's like it's it's another thing like a memorial day when band of brothers comes out like i am like or the Memorial day weekend like i am watching all of this and i'm seeing every big actor nowadays be a child in that like including simon Pegg is in that and donnie Wahlberg. oh wow yeah it, like there's so many people you're like wow you were in this too like just for like a fraction of a second is it's amazing but i love the fact where like you guys keep the perimeter perimeter i'm gonna go up to the room and even hand ready he's trying to convince himself like it's gonna be all right he pulls his gun even though he has issues with it and it's something that i realized I think it's one of the behind the scenes that HBO did for this movie when it came out. Like, you want to kick in the door, you kick in the handle itself. Like, that makes so much sense. Right? Mm. Door up like, no, you kick what would keep it locked um, from entry and everything. And I love how it goes into a handheld camera work as he spins around the room trying to look for him and the, all the labels <laughs> and the condiments and everything have been ripped off and there's chips all over the floor and, like, old food. Like, the, the maid has not been there. And he hears Frank in the bathroom and he tells him to come out. And Frank just plays it cool as a cucumber. Like, yeah, yeah, no, no. like this guy's coming out. is like, I'm an agent looking for him. And Carl Henry is like, just shut up and drop it. And Frank's like, relax, you're late. And money, uh, uh, fraud, uh, money fraud is something that the Secret Service, when they're not protecting the president, is something that falls under their jurisdiction in real life. And it's just so cool. A, we have a DC out with he's using his name as Barry Allen as the Flash as his uh, as his fake identity. I even made a meme when like the Flash TV show started doing the uh, the multiple timelines. I made a a meme of like Leno DiCaprio in the scene. I sent to my friends like Barry Allen Secret Service and this uh, Grant Gustin's face like just flabbergasted. I'm like, oh my god, Barry, what did you do? And it's got a chuckle out of, but your feelings on this scene here.
0: Yeah. uh, So when they go into the room, not only do we see all those those labels missing, he's just got all his stuff right there in plain view of he's obviously committing a crime. You know, like you said, the maid hasn't been there. She can't come in because then she would see what he's actually doing. Um, and then uh, Frank comes out and, like you said, plays it really cool, drops the Secret Service line, even offers him his wallet, offers him to hold the wallet, all that stuff. And I thought that was really bright, too, because I think Carl Hannity Hannity's used to doing FBI work, but like the paperwork side, because, you know. Check fraud and stuff like that. It's not super exciting stuff. And so this is like, you know, he's like, oh my gosh, I get to, I'm excited to be out here and to catch this guy. And he's nervous with the gun and everything, you know, because I think it's just not something he does a lot. And then when um when Frank mentions the secrets or yeah, when Frank mentions the secret service, I think that's really exciting to Carl because He's like, "Oh my gosh, I knew it. I'm onto something big. Even the secret services involved. It's like his dream come true. Like people are realizing how important what he's doing is." And so I think that um I think that that helps disarm him because he's thrown off by like that compliment essentially. <laughs> and then uh Carl does that super believable or Frank does that super believable thing where he like looks out the window and goes look well they're taking him in a way and it's that uh that blind gentleman that has a helper <laughs> right we saw him in an earlier scene mm-hmm. uh leo had run by him and um talked to him which is something that i think was done for two reasons one it sets up this scene but it also sets up leo as like this nice person like he's running around with all that stuff in his arms but he stops for a minute he's like how are you doing he's, he's very approachable and very friendly And we learn that in that scene. And then later when he's being walked to his car, it's a really good, I mean, why would somebody be putting someone into the car? If you you don't know that they can't see, it looks like someone's being taken away. And then he yells something to him, hey, and that guy knows him because we saw in an earlier scene that they've talked before. So that's believable. But then he kind of looks, um, but then he kind of looks away as he says, you know, that he's with the FBI and stuff. <laughs> so the guy downstairs in the car can't hear him because then he'd be like, What are you saying? What? <laughs> yeah, he's he's he, he
1: Frank is somebody who thinks on his feet. And this scene exemplifies that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I, I, it's one of the things like I remember I know I said I didn't see this until like 2005, but there are moments from the trailers that's always stuck with me. And one of them is the moment where. Carl, like, Frank grabs his stuff, says, I'm going to take this into evidence. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go down and bring this to my car. Can you secure the scene while I get everybody up here? And he says, and Carl's like, sure. Wait, your wallet. No, nah, you can hold on to it. I trust you. Frank leaves. And Carl goes to the wallet, realizing it's all the labels to all the things that are in the Oh, room.
0: I do remember that.
1: Yeah. But it, the things in the trailer is when Carl sticks his head out the window and sees Leo run away, and he screams like, Hey! That moment, and then later on when we see Leo with all the flight attendants um, um, hanging off his arm as he walks through the Miami International Airport, those are two moments from the trailer that always stuck with me. And it's one of those moments in the movie that I always think of when Catching the Can comes up, uh, those two moments. And then Carl throws the wall across there like, oh, God damn it! Uh, it, it it's so frustrated and you, you have to laugh because you – feel bad for him but it is kind of a funny moment there
0: it's like he's so serious and he's so wrapped up he's not being observant and also i i love when he looks out the window and s- the way that uh leo looks at him and he's running away it's real comical like you feel like in real life he probably wouldn't leave out that door right but they do it because it's it's funny
1: yes yeah, so it's a perfect punchline to the joke that that ready realizes that he's in mhm mhm
0: Yeah, and, like, I think also, too, like, it wasn't intuitive to me why all those labels were missing. Uh, So you were saying earlier the labels were missing when he already got in the room, so he had already, like, stuffed that fake wallet? Or was he doing that while his back was turned and he was, like, looking around?
1: I think that was because we see that earlier on in the movie when Frank's father is being honored by the Rotary Club. We see him take the labels off one of the bottles there. I think that's just, like, a tick that he does. And I guess he just stuffed it into his wallet just to keep the labels because he likes labels. I think that's why he's so good at taking the Pan Am labels off the models to be used for the tech forgery. Okay. And I guess like he likes the logos and everything. And since there's so much stuff into his wallet, it seems like a badge would be in his wallet, and it's not just empty.
0: Right. Okay, yeah. And it's go, on. go ahead. Sorry, I was gonna say it sets up the fact that um, he would be so good at. Duplicating logos and things too because he likes them because he's obsessed with them, right? That that makes a lot of sense. I didn't pick up on that. Okay, cool. Um, but I also love
1: uh, later on where this is the closest thing that, G- that is gonna get to directing a James Bond movie, right? Which he campaigned for after Jaws that he wanted to do a James Bond movie, but uh, the broccoli's um, Cubby Broccoli didn't want him to do it, and hmm. so. That led to when Lucas was successful after Star Wars and Jaws and Close Accounts was, was successful. The story goes that Spielberg and Lucas will go to Hawaii the opening weekend of whenever that movie comes out. And those go and relax and just get away from everything. And so mm-hmm. Lucas got the results of Star Wars and he's like, oh, OK, good. So here's the next idea for a movie I have. And that's what how Raiders of the Lost Ark came about. And it's curious because that Bro- coming broccoli one of the close encounters themed or like the five notes to be used in Moonraker, which came out in '79. And they said, two books like, yes, of course. And then when it came to the Goonies, when we want to use the Mission Impossible theme when data is introduced, that broccoli was like, was we're kind of contentious to get him to use that. Just the, wow, yeah, and so. I say, like this is the closest thing we're gonna have Spielberg directing a Bond movie is when Leo is filling out that that uh, classic uh, Connery suit, which I think I want a suit of that because it is that sharp. And then, like we see the Aston Martin DB5 with the James Bond music underneath it, and I like you could argue that's probably a second unit shot because we don't see Leo; we just see a car driving on the street, and Spielberg may not have directed. But I hope in my heart heart of hearts that I hope that Spielberg actually directs that shot because like like I said, that's the closest thing he's going to get to make a Bond movie.
0: <laughs> yeah. That suit is really slick and of course you have to show the car. And he says that like that's part of Bond's uniform is it, the clothes he wears, his car, everything he does. And you know, the whole movie is kind of mirroring that aspect of I mean, he's not a spy, but he's a con man. So it's kind of it, it's, it feels a little bit similar.
1: Yeah, and then we see he we see him go to the theater and watch Goldfinger because that was the popular movie at the time, and that he is so slick that he catches the eyes of Jennifer Garner while he's in the hotel one night.
0: Yeah, he does, but with a catch.
1: Yes, that we find out that she's a, I would say I wouldn't say an escort. I think that's the most polite way to say it.
0: And- yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, you know, I don't know a lot about being a model at that time, but it's like, they're very desired and wanted by powerful men. And I mean, that's one way to get, uh, you know, the paycheck that maybe they're not getting from the modeling, I guess.
1: Yeah. And it's, I remember like when I saw as a kid, I thought it was kind of like boring and everything, but he, watching the adult, <laughs> I mean, yes, I, I get it with like, Awakening and everything uh, becoming and such. So now as an adult, like, it's a very seductive scene. And, like, the kind of playfulness they have, especially when she grabs the deck of cards and she's saying, like, how much would you pay me for the entire night? Like, like 300 like, go fish. And then the amount increases until they reach $1,000. And then you cross-cut it with Carl Hanray just at the laundromat showing how their lives are at the point. And they could be more polar opposites.
0: Yeah. And also, I think, uh, you know, they make a deal in that moment where she says 1400 and then she and then she's like, uh, I have 400 here, and then you give me that check, and he's like, okay. And, you know, that's a fake check. And they're both, like, sort of fakes, in a way, because they're both – they both want something that the other person has, and that's money, you know, or beauty. But it's like, I don't know, there's something – Like similar about those two characters to me in that moment because she wants that sort of, you know, lavish lifestyle. And this is the way that she's going to get it. And he wants a lavish lifestyle and he wants this girl and that's how he's going to get it. But it's both like it is a sexy scene, but it's also like transactional. So I don't know. I just think it's an interesting scene. Yeah. And I think it's
1: apparently supposed to be a transaction going through. Right. And so like you, from Frank's point of view, that he just got $400 cash and he spent <laughs> yeah. the night with this woman. And and even though like Jennifer Garner is in here for this one scene, she makes an impression.
0: Oh, definitely. Yeah, she always does. And and yeah, and like from her perspective, she's like, yeah, a $1,000. And, you know, at first he's like, oh, women are just so attracted to me. But it's like, eh, part of it is, the uniform the money uh what what he's sort of selling by being who he is and so that's what that's what she wants it's like you know how many guys does she take back to a room that think like oh this woman just magically is interested in me and then she's like okay where's the money
1: <laughs> yeah and, and the fact that like it takes he's kind of slow on the uptake at first
0: Oh yeah, he's like, well, what do you mean? Oh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this comes with strings attached. But I'm already too far in, yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: But I-, I love the fact that she does. She doesn't patronize him, and she doesn't look down on him. And she doesn't like call him an idiot. And, like, they're
0: in the okay. same position in a way, yeah. Yeah,
1: and, but then she's just like, like, and she's she plays it real smooth because they're both conning each other at that point.
0: Exactly. And there's something kind of exciting and fun about that, even though, like, you could film it in a way where it's, like, terrible. Instead, it's, like, a fun scene. Right.
1: Imagine David Fincher doing that scene.
0: Oh, gosh. I think, yeah. I feel like Requiem? (laughs) I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I I, 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 I go to a dark place thinking about it.
1: Yeah, I think of, like, uh, the girl with the dragon tattoo when she's dealing with her... Um, handler at that point and I was like oh no this is just very uncomfortable as a transaction to what you want and so I say we I say we move on into gets yes. the <laughs> the reason why this is a christmas movie because numerous times throughout this movie we we spend it on christmas eve where frank uh calls um uh Carl at the office and sees him like saying like he wants to apologize for making him look like an idiot and like Carl doesn't believe him until he realizes like you have nobody to call. That's why you call me on Christmas Eve and makes fun of him for it. And that's what causes Frank to get up and leave in a huff.
0: Yeah, you know that uh, in the behind the scenes I was watching about the real Frank, he said there were a lot of nights alone in his hotel room crying. Because he was so lonely because he, he had to lie to everybody that he met. And so he was spending holidays alone and he was very lonely. So I, I think that's another part of this movie that that really makes an impression. You, you make a connection with the Frank and the uh, Carl character because they, they're both lonely people. Like Carl's making fun of him in that moment, but he's not with his family on Christmas either. I mean, they're both similar in that respect.
1: Yeah, but at least Carl is honest to why he's not with his family. And he's true, not, true. not living a lie. And, but the same thing with, with Frank is living a lie. And so there's always going to be a separation to whomever he's with because he's telling so many lies he doesn't know where the truth is, which comes up later on when he's talking to Martin Sheen's character. hmm Which kind of transitions to when we find out where he's moved down to Atlanta and a friend of his has to go to the hospital after a party a party getting out of hand and we're introduced to Amy Adams as a nurse and we watching it i guess a couple years ago i like i totally forgot Amy Adams was in this movie
0: yeah same when when i uh was looking at the movie um at the list uh, like the cast list before i started watching it i was like oh yeah i forgot she was even in this
1: because she is so young in this movie like like leonardo dicaprio
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: and i think the fact they make her look younger on purpose as well do
0: with the braces yeah
1: and then she kind of has a kind of a naive personality you would say
0: yeah very childlike and like dependent on her parents it's interesting yeah <laughs> i feel like it's from another time for sure
1: totally i mean like even to the point like even though they say like she's been kind of ostracized by her family we find out later on because she had an abortion and she's kind of on the outs of her family but once she kind of gets back in because she's Dating a doctor and everything that like they kind yeah. of watch TV and that she even sits on her father's lap for and everything, and Frank gets to see like oh this is what a functioning family is like and see the husband and wife dynamic with Martin Sheen and his wife in the movie and how uh, what a happy marriage could be or what it should be in Frank's eyes.
0: Even though once again it's kind of artificial because you know Amy Adams' character like you mentioned she had an abortion and her parents wouldn't even let her come home because they're lutheran and um you know you feel like that's the reason but then later when she's dating Frank they welcome her back so is it really because of the abortion or is it more about appearances i feel like a lot of things in this movie are about how you appear to everybody else and even her parents are like that it wasn't you know it, it's not so much what she does it's what what it looks like, right? It's like the second that a that a doctor is interested in her, suddenly they're forgiving forgiving her. Like that's, you know, that's kind of fake. (laughs) But yeah, Carl is or sorry, Frank is really seduced by this idea of like, you know, this perfect family and maybe I can kind of be a part of this family. Like, you know, that's that's very exciting to him.
1: Right. But it's also getting back to the point that I said earlier, like the problems I, I could have with Frank is when he's pretending to be the doctor. And potentially, how many patients could have been hurt or died under his watch because he's not a real doctor?
0: Have you heard about uh, that Have you heard that podcast or, or seen on the news Doctor Death?
1: Yes, and
0: it, it, <laughs> that's what I thought of when I saw the scenes this time.
1: Well, first episode, like the, the detailing of his botched surgery. Like I had to sit down because I thought I was going to get sick because it, it pulls no punches when it comes to uh, what this this character did. With the actual doctor death, and that's why I can imagine what could have happened to Frank with him being in that position.
0: Yeah, it it yeah. If you guys ever get a chance to listen to that podcast, it's really good. But it definitely is somewhat of an indictment on our healthcare system and just how far a hospital will go to, you know, cover their tracks and make themselves look good. Definitely seem to take priority uh, over the patients, and uh, that happened here in Dallas. <laughs>
1: Yep, it's, it's kind of ridiculous, but also that's why I love Wondery's podcast because they're,
0: yes. they're, they're
1: like that and the city, which I'm re- I'm in listening to right now. Which, oh, like, I haven't heard that. Yeah, it's about the re- reconstruction of Chicago in the early 1990s, but breaking down all these old cities, all this all this debris has to go somewhere, and so these dumps are larger than the buildings around them, and like these ta- these part of the projects in Chicago are covered in dust and everybody has health effects because of these dumps of all this rubble and everything and
0: oh my god yeah
1: it that's is awful. it is it is awful and like but it's also fascinating to listen to so I recommend that as well listeners along with dr death if you have a strong stomach
0: oh for sure it, it definitely made me nauseous at my desk so I, I totally agree with you there
1: yes <laughs> uh, so that's one that's one thing I have against Frank as a con man like you we're putting lives at risk in the, being in that position. That's the one thing I kind of, I will pass judgment on the Frank in the movie and probably in real life.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I can see that.
1: Like, but that's like the only thing like other than like that. And, it, and the point that the movie underlines it when he's called to evaluate a patient who's hurt himself um, riding his bike and like his bone is pretty much sticking out of his leg. And it's supposed to be graphic. It's supposed to be, visceral and we're in frank's shoes at that point like um like i'm gonna be sick here and i I have to keep up appearances like uh do you concur do i do you concur like yes i think that's what we should do yes that's what you should do and then he runs away and gets sick in the janitor's closet
0: (laughs) i would be too that's so gross
1: (laughs) yeah like movie blood i have no problem with like I cut my finger and I'm like, I weak I, I, I somebody like, I cannot be a doctor. I will faint numerous times. <laughs> but yeah, it is, it is fascinating to see that. And, but then he, um, I guess seduces Amy Adams' character and they begin a relationship. And so she takes him home to Louisiana to meet his parents. But since he's in a relationship, he can't change the name. Which leads to the fact that we, at the same time, Carl is looking up at the names of Barry Allen and he realizes. and fun fact, that set that he's in, that little diner, he's been in a million movies, by the way. Um, it's like Oh, was, really? Yeah, like you think of most famous, speaking of David Fincher, the scene when Gwyneth Paltrow talks to Morgan Freeman saying that like, they're going to have a baby and she hates living in that city. That's the exact same set. It's one of those things that, like, it's one of those sets that appears in a million movies. Same thing with this mm. location and There Would Be Blood. Like, the, the Plainview Estate is the same one that's used in, I think, The Prestige at the very end. And it, it was a cracked article saying, like, the most used uh, sets in movies. That's one of them. But that's when Carl is informed that Barry Allen is a comic book character. And so (laughs) it's cool to see DC characters in a, in a movie and see like comic books. He reads comic books and see old school flash comics in a movie. Like, ah, that's cool. And that's how he realized he mentioned something about the Yankees. So they tracked down all the missing kids of in New York around that time. That's where it leads them to Carl and his two associates running into or talking to Frank's mother, and I love the scene when they're trying to figure out if Frank's a kid or not. And one of his colleagues tries to have, I don't know if it's coffee cake or pecan pie, and he's trying to have, he's trying to have it, like, he, Carl's trying to maintain eye contact with Frank's mother, and then stabs his colleague with the fork and everything. Like, it's really <laughs> like that that makes scenes like that stand out to me.
0: Yeah, yeah, that was pretty funny. <laughs> it, the, the pie or whatever it was looked really tasty, too.
1: Yeah, that's a problem, especially since I'm just like, if I'm watching movies at night that have food, like, a part of my diet is like not to eat anything after eight o'clock. I try to keep that. It's not, I'm not always successful, but it's like, uh, now I'm hungry. Now I can't, I can't eat anything until I get up tomorrow morning. This sucks. And it's up I'll be watching the movie late at night. I'm like, oh, that pie looks good. Like, I want dessert right now. And I'm like, damn it. Why do I have to be good to myself like this? <laughs> But I love the fact that when like oh they realize that Frank's the guy responsible and, and like yes this is our unsub and Frank's mother like oh tell me how much he owes and I'll just write a check I've been taking I've been giving piano lessons like uh, so far it's one point four million dollars and leaves <laughs> and leaves his mother stunned at the door right there.
0: She's so clueless yeah I feel like she's very like not in touch most of the movie and that part was really funny. She didn't even seem that worried that he was missing, which obviously she's not later, but yeah.
1: Oh, totally. One of the most important things is that when she says the town she's from, she's from Mount Rashad. We do see one of the associates, like he's the one taking notes, and so that's what it's a setup to be paid off later. But once when, when they later on, we seem tracked down to his his office, which. I love that scene when the FBI comes to the hospital when they're in Georgia. It all shot from low angles. They all have their guns out, and they go into his office, and then his, his house. It's just Spielberg being Spielberg right there. so
0: mm-hmm.
1: a master storyteller, and I can, it's endlessly fascinating to me.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Um, so I'll ask you to when your feelings on... Frank, uh, uh, saying that I'm also a lawyer and I'm willing to marry you. How do you feel about that and him trying to uh, study to pass the bar by watching, uh, Perry Mason reruns?
0: (laughs) Well, uh, yeah, this becomes a very interesting point later in the movie, but he, uh, he has that conversation with, uh, her father, right? And. Or no, that that happens later. He he hasn't asked her to marry her, him yet, right? No, not yet. But
1: he he goes there to ask her father's permission to ask her hand in marriage.
0: Okay, okay. And when they're having dinner, he he mentions that he's thinking about being a lawyer, and I think that's because he's he he knows that they're the FBI is on him at this point, right? So he's got to kind of switch gears. So that's part of it. Uh, and then the other reason is that he really likes her father and he's starting to idolize her father as well. and so he wants to be like him and he also wants them to like him more. So he decides to you know be a lawyer and they're like, oh, a doctor and a lawyer. And he's like, yeah, totally. So he starts studying and uh, and yeah, I love the the scene with the uh, with the judge where he has like no clue what he's doing. <laughs> it's like part of the test, I guess.
1: Yeah, like, there is no jury. There is no defendant. It's just me. And what the hell is wrong with you? <laughs> and, and, like, it's like, yeah. ah, like, oh, I'm being a showman. That, I guess that's how his, uh, way he's going to define himself there. Uh, right,
0: right, 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 right. It's like, it's clear you're watching a lot of TV.
1: <laughs> yeah, and it's so funny that, like, my dad started watching a lot more Perry Mason reruns lately. So I'm seeing a lot of Perry Mason on TV. I'm just like... And I just think to myself, what the hell is wrong with you? Like, that line just pops up whenever I see that now. It's just intrinsically <laughs> married to each other. But I love that moment when Frank asks for Martin Sheen's uh, permission and he says like, like, w- like, a doctor, a lawyer, and a Lutheran? Like, tell me what's real. Like, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a lawyer, I'm not a Lutheran, I'm not an airline pilot, I don't know who I am. And quarantine doesn't thinks he's just trying to be like i'm breaking myself down i'm just being honest like i'm just a man but like
0: yeah he he's like people no, the- here <laughs> yeah he was talking to him almost like like he was his father or somebody he's always looking for that figure in his life you know and so it's like he he breaks down and says all that stuff He's he's like finally oh what a relief it's all out in the open and then his father's just like you're just like me a romantic <laughs> I was like, "We're nothing without the women we love." He's like, <laughs> "Yes, that's precisely
1: what I mean. Yes, that—that's the ticket."
0: That—that that must have been interesting for him later, when he does get the FBI at his door and all that. He's probably thinking back on that conversation, like, "Oh, never mind."
1: He's <laughs> like, "Oh, he wasn't kidding at that point."
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: Um. And it's curious because you mentioned that he's looking for a father figure because in real life, after Frank ran away, he never saw his father again. But Mm. in the movie, we see him see his father uh, a few times and then how the last time he meets his father, it doesn't end. It ends kind of terribly when his father says, like, keep stealing. Take as much as you can. And it's like, but Frank Jr. says, like, tell me to stop and I will.
0: Yeah, he wants to come home. He wants someone to intervene and pay attention to him because it kind of seemed like when they had that divorce, they were so caught up in their own world, they weren't really making sure he was okay. He was getting bullied at school. He wasn't accepted. He acted out by trying to be that substitute teacher. That didn't work. And then he ran away and he's like, hey, stop what you're doing and pay attention to me. And instead of doing that, his father just says, you can't stop. Which I kind of saw. I kind of saw that as like you're you're like me. You know, you're my son, and I I didn't stop committing tax fraud until I absolutely had to, and that's what you're gonna do, you know?
1: Yeah, the, he just wants somebody. It's like he's crying out for attention. He just wants somebody to like hold him and love him, and that's what all this is really about. And he just this whole journey is to find that like. Going about this way, he won't get the attention he wants. He won't get the genuine connection that he wants the only connection that he really has is the person who's hunting him trying to put him in jail.
0: Mhm, yeah, I think it's a pretty harsh lesson, like it's not gonna go back to the way things were when he was a little kid. He is no longer the center of his parents' universe, and that's something he's gonna have to accept, unfortunately, like he can still you know, like you said in in real life, you know' it's a little different, but i I would say. In real life, if you're having a conflict with your parents, there you can patch things up, but it's never going to go back. Like you can't go back in time and fix it, you know. And he has a really hard time with that in the movie,
1: right? Because when you're a kid, your parents are superheroes, mm-hmm. and it has to come to that realization. Like, oh no, these are just grown up versions of their kid- of kids just trying to make decisions and not screw up their own kids, right? And it's a harsh reality that everybody has to come to at one point in their life. Yeah. It's just how, yep. it's how Frank does it. He just rips off the government of money. Right. And, but like, and so uh, Carl Henry realizes like, oh, he's going to get married because he has a conversation with him. Like, alright. He can't change the name. He's got to be uh, what was it, I don't know if it's Collins or if that was the last name of the night. So they engagement uh, announcement so they track him down to Louisiana and Frank tells Amy Adams, like run away with me we don't have to worry about money I have all the money in the world just do this for me and Amy Adams is like so entrenched in her lifestyle and her normal day life she's not the kind of person that can drop it a hat and just leave it a moment's notice.
0: Sure and she's very disillusioned I mean her whole life was starting to fall into place after having a pretty rocky start. And now it's, that's probably not going to happen. And she doesn't know who the person she's marrying even is, even though he says his name to her in that moment. He tells he takes a big risk. Well, not a big risk. I guess they already know his name, but he tells her his real name. Like here I am. But is that enough? I mean, for someone to come clean just in a moment and they've been lying this whole time. And now you suddenly trust them. Like from her perspective, she's like, this is, A little, a bit much. (laughs) I'm jumping out of the frying pan into the fire here. So I think she just, yeah, she's like, no, I'm not, I'm not going to run away with you. I can't.
1: No, because she has to replay every conversation she's had with him in her head back and wonder if it's right or not.
0: In the uh, and that's the big drawback to his lifestyle. You know, is he can't he can't really be with someone when he's doing this.
1: Definitely, and it leads to one of my favorite set pieces of the entire movie. How does he get out of Miami International when the FBI is falling for it? (laughs) Uh, It is like, it is beautiful filmmaking right here where Frank's like, all right, that his fiance has sold them out. They're all waiting for him. How do I get past him? Like, all right, I'm going to get myself a uniform. I'm going to recruit some women from a local college and make them to be honorary flight attendants. And I love that montage of the interviews. Of all the yeah. ten it's like like there's like one I mean it, it's pokey fun for like we're gonna be traveling about three thousand miles an hour at the absolute of six hundred feet, like reverse those two
0: then you then you then, <laughs> then you will be fine And then I think it's a window into like you know they went to the college, found the prettiest girls, and put them on a plane. it It wasn't really more complicated than that,
1: <laughs> no, but it's also just like. That majestic moment when they all get out of the cars and it's like, it's like a magic hour and the sun is like the perfect place and everything is immaculate and everybody's head turns and looks at the flight attendants. Nobody pays attention to the pilot that's with them. Exactly. But the icing of the yeah, cake. It's is, genius. Yeah, and then the icing the cake is that they they have somebody dressed up as a pilot looking to pick up crawl and All the FBI descend upon this one driver with guns drawn, and pulls up the sign and says hand ready and then like carl's like oh god damn it and he looks up in the sky and he sees a fl- uh, plane take off and you're like that is just great filmmaking right there and it's something I'm, yeah. I'm smiling right now just thinking about it
0: right you know it's a brilliant scene <laughs> he asked him who who said that and when he shows him the sign it's like "Oh, what an insult to injury
1: yeah just like oh <laughs> like it's just like it is the cherry on the top of the cake like all right i'm gonna I'm going to sneak past you right in front of you and I'm going to sign, I'm going to put my signature on it right there.
0: Right, right, right.
1: It's like the Joker in Batman 89. Like, Joker was here as he, as he <laughs> improves the art in his words. <laughs> but it kind of ends up when they realize, like, he's in Europe and, and, um, and trying to figure out, like, all these checks. They're like, these are not real, these are not fake checks. They're real checks that He's been cashing, and they're trying to catch him. And he realized that he's been using this gigantic, like, machine that's be able to do it. And, like, this one in Germany, and France. France, as the old men realize, like, that's where it's probably coming from. And they realize he's in his mother's old town, Mount Rashad. And so Christmas Eve, Carl confronts Frank, and he's, he's printing thousands of checks at this point. And another moment in the trailer that I always think about is when from Leo screams, and I'm like, Merry Christmas! And in the background, it's all the chicks flying around him. That's another iconic moment for this movie that always sticks with me.
0: Yeah, and he's very, like, unhinged in this moment. Like, it's all kind of crashing down, right? Because he said eventually he's going to run out, and it's, you know, he, he's also really escalated his crime by making it international. And uh, he's really playing with fire here, and he wants to. Right? He It's like, He's being extremely reckless at this point. And, uh, and he seems just out of his mind in this scene.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah. he like He's probably had, haven't had a real conversation with anybody in, looks like, months at this point.
0: Right, yeah.
1: And the only person he has a genuine connection with shows up on Christmas Eve, like, that would be a perfect Christmas gift to yourself, right? They're like, hey, I get to talk to you. But I'm going to get away. or well, at least he thinks anyway.
0: Right. Uh, th- that's where, you know, Frank starts telling him, Hey, you've made some people really mad. You've embarrassed them in their country. And there's a bunch of guys out there right now with guns. And that's when, um, you know, this entire time Frank's treated it like a game. So he's like, no, you're bluffing. And he's like running around. He's like, don't run around. Don't go out there. They'll kill you. They'll shoot you. And that's when he, uh, he comes over to him and, and makes him swear on his daughter, <laughs>
1: yeah they like you you're being honest with me right now and you carl says yes i gotta take you on handcuffs which he does and he gets out there and it's a nice little it's a little beat that i love with all the noise you hear is just the carolers when he gets out of the building mm-hmm. and it's something that's and like frank's like oh like you were lying once again but he wasn't because the french police do come and take um custody of frank at that point and
0: well, and the first thing they do when they pull up is they all pull, the, pull out, like, guns. I mean, they're angry. I mean, they want to kill them.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't blame them for being, like, nope. by, by, for um, fraudulently writing millions of dollars worth of checks in the, the country. Like, yes, I think Interpol would be very angry at uh, Frank at that point.
0: Right. And, and, you know, he's lucky to have Carl because Carl immediately is like, well, I want to make sure he's okay. He's like, let me ride the car with him. And again, it's like, I think there's a lot of, both these characters have so much in common and they're lonely and they've built a relationship with each other that's stronger than the relationships they have with other people. And he's like, let me ride with him, which is like crazy that he thinks I don't know. It's funny that he, he feels so much ownership over him at this point. And then he tells him, don't worry. Like he shifts from being so excited. He caught him to being like, don't worry. I'm going to get you out of here and back to the States.
1: <laughs> yeah. It just kind of sucks. It takes him four years to extradite him at that point.
0: Yeah. Well, <laughs>
1: <laughs> the judicial system, it, it, it happens like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and so uh, this whole time we've been cutting back and forth to the so-called present of them transporting, um, Frank back to the States. And when we find out when we're about to la- land in JFK, that's when Carl tells him that Frank, your dad's dead, that he died yeah. like Grand Central Station, that he fell and he broke his neck. And that is that's a rough scene right there. And how Frank kind of freaks out and he needs to go to the bathroom. Like, how do you react to something like that? Like you kept that secret to you from you at that point.
0: Well, and also that was the price of him running away and living this lifestyle. He couldn't really be in contact with him, his father to know that something had happened to him. And his father died basically penniless trying to catch a train to his job. I mean, it's just double bummer.
1: Right. And plus with the, it's just like, how I, what was it? There was, a family member that went through some hard times in my life and that was kept from me for a couple months when I was away at school. And the reason why my family did that is because they didn't want that to affect my studies. And so I was angry at them for them keeping them secret with me at first But then I realized it was for the best they did that. And so I kind of see where Carl is coming from at that point.
0: Oh, for sure. I think, you know, uh, Frank was in a very fragile, frantic state when he caught him. I mean, he was like losing his mind Um, to add on top of that really tense situation. Hey, your dad's dead, too. Like, I don't think that would have been a good idea. And then like when he was in prison for four years. Yeah. That he wouldn't have been able to see him even if he had fallen and survived that. like. Yeah, I think, you know, there's no real great time to tell somebody horrible news.
1: No, but I love how that results in Frank in the escaping the plane by escaping the bathroom and jumping out by the landing gear. And it's like, like, I I love the moment when like Frank won't open the door and they kick in the door and he's gone. And Carl's like, wait, he was just in here. How did he get out? And that, that flabbergasted look it's like. We've had a serious moment, and then we're gonna punctuate it with a funny moment, and but not in like an insincere way, where like we can't have a sincere moment, like some like certain comic book movies that like we are gonna have a serious moment, but here's a dick joke, like don't take us too seriously, <laughs> And like who we can't have too many emotions in a movie or anything, and so but I love the fact that it results to him, I presumed going to Long Island at that point. I'm not sure to see his mom and. Eh, on Christmas Eve, wondering what she's doing and she's having her new life. And then he has a stepsister or half sister at this point with. Yeah. And I I just find that a really sweet, but also kind of heartbreaking moment. I'm not sure how you feel about it.
0: Yeah. I think immediately when he left the airport, that's where he was going. At first they thought he was just running away again, but I think he was devastated that he lost his dad and he wanted to see his mom. And then he gets there and his mom has started over a completely new life without him and is having that sort of Norman Rockwell painting with a new family. And that is terrible. (laughs) It's just really sad. And so that's when he's like, he, he, you know, when all the police cars pull up, that's a really, really cool scene. And then when he, uh, he just says Frank or he says, Carl, take me home just put me in the back of the car. He realizes there's nowhere to run at this point.
1: No, he has nothing left. He like prisons. The only solace that he has at that point, which he's at a pretty low point. And yep. it, it is, a, I, I do like the, how You say like the Norman, the picturesque Norman Rockwell moment on Christmas, like how idyllic it looks, but points out like how false it is and how, it is a facade like so much of this movie it is put upon at this point
0: yeah
1: and it's like ah it, I, i'm starting to appreciate this movie more and more as we talk about it and i, I think it was last year my friend dakota and i did our top 10 favorite spielberg movies countdown and this was not in my top 10 i think it was at number 11 i think it was my honorable mention now thinking about it I'm like ah, i think i have to move things around i think i have the movies into my top 10 now
0: nice nice yeah
1: and so but at the end it kind of comes to like carl realizes goes to visit frank in prison and shows him like ah, what's he working on and he shows him the check and then uh carl realizes oh no this is what this guy's doing and then carl's like son of a bitch you're right and
0: it's interesting huh how their relationship continued it's like he sees that really sad you know, parting with his mother where he's like, I just want to leave. He didn't even say anything to her and just, you know, gets in the car to go to, to prison. And so at first he's just visiting him because you know, he's his only friend. <laughs> but then he ends up mentioning a case to him, like you said, and he realizes there's some serious potential there.
1: Right. And it leads into we're going to release you from prison, but you're going to have to work for the FBI. You're going to have to work off your prison sentence, which I, I do. I, I presume and he's under this, the custody uh, to Carl, which I love that moment when they're in the kind of visitation room, like, all right, who's uh, who's responsible for me? And this, Tom makes this raises his finger like me, like I'm going to be taking <laughs> care of you. It's a question I had, like, I presume he got some kind of a salary in order to work for the FBI, in order to cover living expenses while he's working off his prison sentence.
0: That's what I would think. And then he has that question, like, how long do I have to do this? And he's like, oh, you work eight to five or whatever he says. And he goes, no, like, for how long? He's like, till we let you go. So in a way, it's, it's just a different prison sentence. And it's working with the guy that's been chasing him. Like, he has complete control. And that is pretty terrifying to DiCaprio's character.
1: And the fact that he's faced with a mundane life of a nine to five job, with the yeah. punctuation of the file size getting bigger and bigger, and he never seems to get ahead.
0: Welcome to reality, kid.
1: <laughs> oh. Yeah, it, it just, it just. It, I, I I love that moment, but it also makes me feel like, oh god, this is terrible, and that's what leads him to want to run away once more as a pilot, even though he tries to have like a normal weekend, like hey, maybe we can do something this weekend. Like maybe we can, I don't know, just work together, like coming on Saturday so he doesn't want to be alone. Like, nope, I'm going to see my family. You're going to have to worry about yourself. I'll see you on Monday. And Frank's like, all right. But I love that moment before he leaves. Like he leaves and Carl stares at him. He he wonders, like, is he going to run again or not?
0: Yeah. There was a really cool scene breakdown. I don't remember if it was every frame of painting or... One of th- one of those they they broke this whole scene down really well. I need to find it. It was really. Cool. I think
1: it was brilliant and brilliant movie moments. I
0: think maybe it was that. Yeah, watched yeah. that
1: last night in preparation of this. Mm, okay, it's okay. That look that Carl gives Frank as he walks across the office and leads to them in the terminal, like I mentioned earlier, where Carl spills the beans on his family, what he does and everything, and how this is my life, but this is how I'm going to do it, and. I know you're not gonna run because I know you, Frank, at this point, and I'll see you on Monday. But like a something that Spielberg says says, like, be a horde, like not delete like build irk enough suspense out of every scene you can. And it's just Carl watching the clock, wondering if Frank's gonna come in. Is he gonna come back? Am I gonna have to chase him? Am I gonna be am I gonna catch shit for the fact that he's run again? And eventually ends with Everybody's expanding, looking at these new uh, checks that are being fraud. And that's when Frank comes in. He's like, let me take a look at it. And like, oh, he's been using like public nail polish remover in order to erase the ink off of it, et cetera, et cetera. And then pulls out that really big crane shot ac- across the office. And then we have text to fill it in what happened for the rest of their lives.
0: Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, when they're at the airport and uh, and Carl says, look behind you, Frank nobody's chasing you it's like that's over that part of your life is done you know like this is you know this is what it is it's fun to live that exciting you know jet-setting lifestyle he had but it's not real so even though the real isn't ideal like it's your life you know it's time to start living it and I think he he realizes and accepts that that's his his last big growth spurt in the movie which I think it's
1: everything we've been talking about throughout this movie is that stop looking backwards and um, making it picturesque. Like we you view things and you pass through like rose tinted glasses or nostalgic glasses, nostalgia vision, and everything seems better when you're a child and when you're younger. But no, you have to look forward and you have to accept the responsibilities. But how this movie does it with such a light touch and mm-hmm. something that we haven't really talked about is that John Williams's score makes this movie. I mean it's how playful it is. Really
0: and how old school it sounds. It's really cool. Yeah. It's
1: so Bernard Herman. It is such a Hitchcock score for this. Down to the fact like the the opening titles is very much like a soul bass. Like I think of North by Northwest when I see the opening titles of this movie and right how this movie's like kind of like holding a hand like, all right, you have to be an adult now. And I find it just kind of curious how moviegoers started treating leo as a serious actor after this movie it's like as if he grew up while making this movie
0: yeah good point
1: point. and so yeah we reach the end and we find out that carl and frank um remained friends for years and now frank is a consultant on um for like kind of fortune 500 companies when it comes to uh protecting themselves from uh fraudulent came- claims uh, when it comes to check fraud
0: yeah, I watched a few clips of him. He is still pretty charming.
1: <laughs> I, I mean, I, it, I think it's a skill that never goes away. If not, it just gets better with age, and I can totally see that.
0: Yeah. Well, that brings us back to our two final questions, then. Uh, number one, what keeps you coming back to this movie? It's,
1: I guess, the journey of these characters. I mean, I, I know it's the the... <laughs> it's probably the most basic thing I could probably say about a movie, but it's how effortless Spielberg makes this story look, and how mm-hmm. fun it has. It is joyful. Yes, it deals with serious themes, but and it, it's sincere about them, but it's just so easygoing. It's like one of those movies, like like Shawshank Redemption, like you catch it on TNT, like I'm sitting down and I'm watching the rest of this, even if I have commercials, like it is that or Forrest Gump, or it's just like so like, it's effortless, or you're kind of just floating through it, but it's so, like a movie is like Requiem for a Dream, or Pulp Fiction, serious movies are like, oh, I'm going to sit down, and I'm going to have to be in the right mood to watch this, this movie, it's like, nope, you need to put it on at any time, and you just kind of coast through it, and it's something that I just really enjoy, especially how Spielberg's movies, especially since Schindler's List, have been more serious than not. It's nice to see him get to play. I'm going to be kind of a crowd pleaser. It's something that we mentioned earlier like, one one for you, one for me kind of storytelling. Like, both Munich and War of the Worlds both came out in 2005. One's the crowd pleaser, they have the big blockbuster, and the other's the personal film. And I enjoy both those for different reasons. And that's a testament as Spielberg as a storyteller to see hey, he can do it with such grace that it's fascinating for me to watch.
0: Yeah, I think for me, I like the sort of, you know, Bond-spy aspect of this, how the whole movie is sort of a callback to older movies um, and sort of romanticizing them, but still telling a, a fairly, you know, engaging story through a more modern lens. And then also, you know, I, I just... I just love all the little clues that you get throughout the movie, how things all wrap together like really well into like a nice bow at the end, and how they drop all these reasons for things that happen later, and how things just come back later in the plot. I, I really like that about it. Very nice. So, what would you say to someone that's never seen this one before? Would
1: you like to watch a movie with a young Leonardo DiCaprio where he plays a charismatic con man, but? it costs him more than dollars a cents when the chickens come home to roost.
0: <laughs> Very true. Yeah. I, I you know, it's a, uh, it's a Spielberg movie that should carry some weight and then it's just a fun, exciting film. Like it doesn't, I think if you explain the plot it doesn't necessarily sound as exciting as it is, uh, but it definitely leaves you wanting to look the real guy up and see how much is, is accurate. And so I, I don't know, it's really, Really interesting film. Yeah,
1: it's a fun caper film, much like Steven Soderbergh's Ocean's Eleven. It's mm-hmm. where it's like, oh, we're just going to sit down, we're going to have a fun time, and it's going to be enjoyable every minute as you watch it.
0: Exactly. Well said. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Of course. I mean, thank you Thanks for coming of back. Of course. I mean, uh,
1: it's one of those things that, like, oh, like, oh, it's been, it's been, x amount of days like one of us has to show up on each other's shows i think it's it's
0: pretty much so we just gotta (laughs)
1: keep our online friendship going like all right it's been about x amount of days like we got a podcast about something soon and i say you made the right decision to talk about this rather than my original choice it was a i'm so much i'm so happy that we got a chance to talk about this movie specifically
0: well, we still got to talk about first contact. That's still yours. We still need to do that. Yes,
1: but I think you made...
0: <laughs> we'll do that in the new year.
1: Yes, <laughs> and I think you made the right decision to talk about a Christmas movie. And the reasons why I will make my final declaration: why this is a Christmas movie. It's about family. It's about redemption, and it's about finding a family through friends. And I think that's a certain thing that the holidays can do, especially Christmas. I think that's why I think this. If Die Hard's a Christmas movie, this is a Christmas movie, and this is a hill I'm willing to die on.
0: Agreed. I- I'll back you up. I agree. It's a Christmas movie. We're going to we're gonna stick with that. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Tim, where can people find you?
1: Oh, you can find me numerous places around the internet because I can't shut up. Uh, even <laughs> on Christmas-
0: that's why you're good at
1: podcasting. Exactly. I mean, it- it's when I have to te- if I have to te- say things succinctly. That's why I run into trouble. Um uh, if you want to follow me on Twitter, you can follow me on Twitter at Timothy Rooney Two. My Instagram at T Rooney Ten Twelve. My two podcasts: my personal podcast, the Anything Goes podcast, where you can find SoundCloud and iTunes. We cover geek and pop culture in a myriad of ways, mostly movies, TVs, and comic books. Uh, I just wrapped up my series of Halloween movies called One Good Scare, where my friend Mike and I went through every single Halloween movie once a month, leading up to the twenty eighteen release, and. Please rewind the RF Forum Retro Show. That's the other podcast I do for the Real Fans for Real Movies Podcast Network, where my co-hosts Jamie and Guy and I talk about movies when it comes to their anniversaries or movies that we really want to talk about, and that's a lot of fun. That's where kind of a similar format to this, where we kind of break down a movie and we talk about the history of it, our personal history of it, and we kind of go scene by scene, and it's a lot of fun. Finally. It's my YouTube channel, Through the Lens Productions, where my latest short film, Podcast Problems, is up. And it's all all, all my video stuff is there. Cause so I'm a filmmaker first and foremost. All my stuff goes there. And there should be two, which should be a music video and two other videos coming by early January, which I hope everybody's looking forward to.
0: Amazing. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, I highly recommend uh Tim's podcast. You guys gotta check them out if you want to go deep. And uh, break things down, like, I, I would say, like, on a more technical level, like, you guys really get into it more than, more than I tend to. So, yeah, you go, go check that out. Well, thank you so much, and uh, have a good night.
1: Uh, you too, and I hope to be on again soon. Definitely, definitely.